Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. This is Jeremiah Jenny. David is off teaching today, so it's just me here in the studio, but I am very glad to be joined by Crystal Owen Hund, also known as Tenzin Dolma, a Canadian who has worked out in the province of Gansu for nearly, what are we talking about, 12, 13 years now, where she co-founded an organization and a school called the Snowland Art Academy that she continues to operate today. Of course, there was quite a journey to get there. It starts in Canada, weaves its way through Europe, Africa, India, and finally to China. And we're going to hear about that story from Crystal today. Tenzin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So fill us in. It's an incredible story. And 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 for those people who are are listening in, just to give some background, I I first uh, went to Snowland Art Academy a few years ago when I was leading a trip out in or or co-leading a trip out in Gansu with Ben Cubbage, who we've also heard on this podcast in an earlier episode. And it's an amazing space. But one of the one of the real treats of being there was also getting to know a little bit about Crystal Tenzin's story and how she founded the academy. And it starts with something like, so I was in Kenya and I jumped ship. And I, I thought maybe we could, if not start there, at least give, give our listeners some sense of the journey uh, from Canada ultimately to, to China. So it was actually Sudan, <laughs> not Kenya. Yeah, but you know, it's all, it's all Africa, right? Um, yeah, so I left home quite young, um, 17, and then wandered around the world with a backpack um, on my way to warm places with beaches and have spent my life from 1992 up until the present trying to get to Indonesia never actually got there because I got waylaid by these Tibetans. So I, yeah, wandered around Europe, um, tried to get through Iran, couldn't because I wasn't married, figured that wasn't a great incentive for marriage. So I went south, ended up in Israel, worked on a scuba diving ship in the Red Sea for a bit. Um, captain had anger issues and alcohol problems. I figured long life reasons it might be a good idea to do something else. So jumped ship in Port Sudan, went across to India, um, was planning to stay for six months, traveling around, just backpacking. Ended up accidentally in Tibet um, on my way to Indonesia. <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah, that's a long story. Are we are we doing that story? Oh, yeah. We'll do that story. We're doing that story. Okay. Yeah. So I, I arrived in India with a shore pass, which is a two-week visa for sailors. Um, went up to Delhi to get a proper tourist visa for six months. While I was sat in the hostel waiting for that to be processed, um, this guy who was born in Singapore, but was British, could speak perfect Chinese, um, was looking for a group of 20-odd people to get into Tibet at the time. They wanted to go overland to Hong Kong, so this would have been 96. Um, So because he spoke this beautiful Chinese, they were very happy with us. We all got the visas quite easily. Um, Went up through Nepal on the back of buses, top of buses, and then they shot off to Hong Kong, and I kind of wandered around, you know, Tibet, got to Lhasa, as you do. Um, various mad sorts of things happened and then some more mad stuff happened and then I ended up back in India and was asked if I wanted to volunteer and I said okay I'll be here for a week a year later I was still there doing that and then one of my first friends was a monk and he said well it'll be really good for your karma if you go and volunteer in a monastery for a wee bit like six months and so I said ah you know six months can do six months on my way to Indonesia it's all good So I went down and he had very carefully not informed the monastery officials that I was female. Living in a monastery, there's no precedent for a woman to live. Well, woman, I was, what, 23? I was a baby. Um, So I ended up uh, in this monastery 
to the shock and horror of all these monks who came to pick me up at the train station. And I found out several years later that I just about got kicked out because they didn't know what to do with me when I arrived. They had a vote and um, the vote was that I should leave, but, you know, no democracy in a monastery. So the abbot said, well, let's give her a chance. And uh, 10 years later, I was still there doing that. Tell me a little bit more about this monastery. What, what kind of monastery was it and uh, where were most of the monks from? Uh, so it was a, a Tibetan monastery, um, Drepung, and the monks were mostly primarily from Amdo areas, but also from Ladakh and Mongolia as well. Um, so I was basically studying tanka painting while I was there. That was my, my big thing. Give us some sense of what it's like to live in a monastery. What's the social life like? What does a Saturday night look like? in the monastery when you're 20 something and you think 20 somethings when they're doing like their kind of gap year or gap decade or yeah gap lifetime abroad they you know you think 20 20 something and you're going to the club you're hanging out you're going to the local going to the local irish pub yeah what does saturday night look like in a monastery in northern india Uh, yeah not much of a club scene (laughs) to say the least yeah no um it was very basic um clearly it was not very financially well off, so it was very basic. We didn't have electricity a lot of the time. There were bugs and snakes, and like the local club, if you'd wish to call it that, was a wee tea shop, for lack of a better word. You know, two rupees for a cup of tea um, on the third floor, and it had it was the only place that had a generator. So this is like the height of society was this wee tea shop. Um, and so with this generator running in the background, and so that's where I used to go to entertain myself because there was no other woman, no other foreigners. I was the only one there. Um, couldn't speak any Tibetan at all. Um, so that was incentive to learn <laughs> fairly quickly. So I used to just go and sit in this wee tea shop um, with the generator running and then draw because I am an artist. Um, and that would entertain me. And then by default, all the monks who I met, who became my friends, were mostly artists as well. They were tanka painters. Um, and you don't need language to do art. So they used to come and sit with me and watch what I was doing. And I would show them stuff and they would show me stuff. And then, yeah, after six months, they asked if I'd do another six months. And 10 years later, it's still there. You know, one of the things that uh, always strikes me now is how, is how fluent you are in Tibetan, the, the Amdo Amdo dialect, but how, I'm sure at the time um, it was a bit of a struggle. How else did you learn it to manage to learn Tibetan? I mean, other than simply, you know, hanging out at the tea shop and drawing with the monks. Uh, yeah, well, fluent is is relative. My my strategy is to speak really fast, and then they don't hear all my grammar mistakes. So the faster you crank it out, the better it sounds, and people are always really impressed. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the other way I learned, I was teaching English to the wee monks, the novices, and. Um, a whole room full of wee boys, basically. And so when I first started, I couldn't speak Tibetan, so I would say, like, dog, and they would all look at me blankly. So I would draw a dog, and then they would say, oh, and then say the word in Tibetan. And so I would say the word in English, so they learned English, and I learned Tibetan through Pictionary, basically. That's an uncommon version of a common story, which is that I think for a lot of people who have moved to China, and, I, and this is certainly my case, too, you know, the, the the first couple of years that we're here and we do kind of either the tutoring or teaching thing, there's a lot of reverse engineering of the English we're teaching and trying to figure out the language that we're learning at the same time. And I, 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 I sense it was more challenging in the environment that you were in, but I, I, I totally appreciate that as being an effective way of, of, of learning a language. After your time there in the monastery, and this is 
for you all, dear listeners, this is a part of the story I, I'm excited to get to because I've heard bits and pieces of this story over the years. And every time I do, and every story I've heard, it's absolutely hysterical. So I, I kind of wanted to get to the point here where after a few years in the monastery, as you've established trust among the community, they, uh, they, they often asked you for advice or suggestions, or you gave advice and suggestions. And one of your suggestions was, it, it, it sounds like something out of like a Netflix series. Why don't we do a fundraising tour for the monastery of monks in North America? And since I'm North American, I will accompany this group of monks. Well, let's, let's talk about the evolution of that particular idea then. From And uh, if you can maybe share out some of the the high points and low points of the uh, challenges of, of, of traveling uh, over the course of a year intercontinentally, cross-continentally with a plane load and van full of monks. Um, it's a bit like the Rolling Stones without all the alcohol and drugs and, <laughs> and entertainment. Um, yeah, no, so the idea wasn't actually that I took this tour. I That was, yeah, I suggested that they do a different sort of tour because quite a few monasteries do tours and have been doing tours and they're all kind of similar. So I suggested, why don't you do an arts tour? Because I'm an artist and you have this amazing art culture. Yeah, I think people would be interested to do workshops and things. So I suggested this and they said, right, you do that. Um, and yeah, that <laughs> evolved into two years of preparation, painting tankas and getting everything ready. And then, um, yeah, I, I <laughs> took these nine monks up to Delhi airport to get... Okay, yeah, so we're, we're at Delhi airport now with um, a gazillion bags of all our sale stuff and ginormous duffel bags and, and like dance masks and all these things. So um, all my monks arrived to the airport and um, discover the little like little pushy cart things where if you like pull the handle, then they go and they found that very fascinating. So they were all over the place, like just flying around the lobby of Delhi airport with these things. Um, so finally we get to the check-in and all the bags are just slightly overweight. So they had no compassion on the fact that we had all these bags. They're like, no, 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 you have to unpack them properly. They have to be correct rate. So we had everything unpacked and all over the floor of like Delhi airport and repacking and, and um, finally just shoved everything that was heavy into the carry-ons and all the, the check-ins were finally correct weights. So we finally got that and that took quite some time. And then we went through to security and then the, the security guy was like, yeah, you, you have no dangerous weapons. You have, you're not carrying any liquids, you know, the usual questions they ask. And I said, yeah, I mean, they're all Buddhist monks. Of course, these are pacifists. And he's like, yes, madam, but we, we have to check this. It's our job. So they started putting all these overweight check-in or um, carry-on bags through the x-ray. And then mine beeped because I had a, like a two kilo bag of white sand which, you know, it's not like wee baggies with a wee bit of white powder. It was like a two kilo burlap sack full of white powder. And he just opened it and looked at me like, really, madam, <laughs> you have this? And so I, was, I, I had prepared actually for this. So I had pictures of sand mandalas and I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. And we had all the colored sand. So that was my bag. And then the other bags were going through and then suddenly all the, the bells and whistles went off and they pulled this other bag and at the top of this bag was this large kind of like butcher knife, steak knife. Like it wasn't a tiny wee like pocket knife. This is like a large blade. And so I turn around to the, the monk who was carrying this. I'm like, you know, I told you guys last night, no nail clippers. You know, why do you have this knife? And, you know, this the security guy is like staring at me in fury and horror because I've told them they're all pacifists and I have this like ginormous 
weapon. So, so yeah, that happened. And then like this monk is like, well, I had just thought last night, you know, just, you know, we'd packed and we were in bed ready to go on this. And he's like, oh, wait, but we have all these scroll paintings. And we had taken out the bottom kind of doweling, like the wood. And so when you take the, the, the paintings to the States, we were going to have to buy wood and then stick these little knobs on the end. And to do that, you have to whittle the ends off. And he had thought at like one o'clock in the morning or whatever it was that that would be expensive. It would be cheaper to bring a knife with him. And so he just stuck it on the top of... Anyways, the security was most annoyed with me and shouted at us for a while and they weren't going to let him go. And finally we got through that. And then we went through the customs part. And so they were all fine. They went through, they were stood at the other end. And then it was me. Um, and so I had been in India on like an X visa. So it's like for volunteers, missionaries, I don't know, doctors, whatever. Um, most people had never heard of it to begin with. And as a result of that, they don't actually put a stamp in your passport the whole time. So when you leave, so I had this like tourist visa from like 1997 or whatever it was. Um, it's now 2005 and I have nothing in my passport for that entire time. So this woman was most unhappy with me. Mm-hmm. And I had this huge kind of parchment elephant or elephant envelope with um, like a red red wax blob sealed wax thing on top. So I had just gotten it from the exit bureau, like the police were lovely. Um, And so it was sealed. And so I just handed it over. She opened it and they had spelled my name wrong. Like two letters were reversed or something. I can't remember. And so she was furious. She was like, I'm sorry, this is not you. You cannot, you can't go. You've been in India legally for like 10 years. And so then they made me go to this wee white room and they were going to interrogate me. And the monks are still stood there like, yeah, what do we do? And then this this kind of official guy came and he listened to the whole story from both sides. And then he said, well, you know, if I went to Canada and I did this, what would you do? And I'd like, I would let you go. Mm-hmm. So he's like, OK, fine, no problem. Off you go. And then so now we're galloping through the airport trying to get to the gate because this has all taken quite a lot of time. Um, and so we're galloping along and you can just kind of see the gate in the distance and they're calling our names over the tannoy. And then one of the last hurdles we had to get past was a moving sidewalk. And the monks had never seen one of those. So those that was all very exciting. And when we got to the end, they ran around to do it again. And I'm like, boys, like now is not the time for this. Um, and this all sounds rather entertaining now at the time. <laughs> I was less than entertained, shall we say. So now we get to the gate. British Airways, the stewardess is like, this is the old days where you still had the um, the paper boarding passes. And so we're, you know, I have like one passport, one boarding pass. We're just getting the monks in one at a time. And they're sat all over the plane because we're the last ones. And so they go in one by one. And then finally the last monk, he stood kind of staring at the big glass windows at the plane. And he says, yeah, you know, I don't know. Can't do this. I'm not going to fly. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think you probably really are going to fly. You are really, really going to get on this plane and we're going to do this. He's like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, it's funny now. And at the time I was like, just get on the bloody plane, you know, like just get on this plane. So the stewardess was all very sweet. And she's like, oh, is he afraid? You know, poor boy. I'm like, yeah, poor boy. Just get him on the plane. And so finally she's like, well, you know, what's the problem? You know, are, you know, what are you afraid of? And he's like, no. And his fear was that he'd seen the plane with the wings, wings, birds, birds, wings. He thought the plane was going to go up and kill all these birds and hit birds. And he didn't wish to be a part of that. So I explained this to the stewardess and she's like, oh, bless his wee heart. You know, she was super sympathetic. I was just like, get him on this plane. So she actually sat down with a pen and drew this little picture of like clouds with the birds under the clouds and the plane over the clouds. And he's like, oh, okay. So that kind of sums up the entire 
year in the States and Canada. When you did get to the United States and Canada, help me understand what, what were some of the things that you would do? So you'd roll into a town and, uh, you know, like the Rolling Stones, but minus the groupies and the drugs. Yeah. And uh, what, w- what would you do? Is it was, you, were, you were doing sand mandalas, among other things as well? So we did, what, 27 sand mandalas in a year? So we totally, yeah, lots of sand mandalas. Um, we had like the chem, like the mask dances that we did, but primarily it was art. So we did a lot of art workshops. Um, we had exhibitions of the tankas. We would meet with other artists. And so it was, it was very much an arts culture event. Yeah. And, and for listeners who maybe are less familiar with Tibetan art, could you tell us a little bit more or, or briefly, what's, what is a sand mandala? Why is it so important? And also you mentioned tankas, and these are, of course, a really important part of Tibetan art. And maybe just help us understand what makes a tanka a little bit different from, say, a conventional painting painting. Um, yeah, so most of Tibetan art, whether it's mandalas or tankas or all the other aspects, um, most of it's painted for a very specific person or uh, reason. So if you are going to buy a tanka or uh, request a sand mandala, usually they're, they come with different energies and, and meanings. So it's not just something pretty you would hang up in your wall. Everything comes with the meaning. So uh, mandalas were actually tools for meditation, were our tools for meditation. Um, so it's like a three-dimensional building squashed flat. And in your mind, you're walking through this door, through this amazing palace covered with jewels and symbols and different colors. Um, everything of which means something. And then the center of each mandala will be a different symbol or deity or whatever, representing a different energy. So the point is it's like a mind map teaching you how to control your mind walking through this kind of visual experience. Um, Traditionally, uh, tankas historically were also used for similar purposes. Um, So often the deity, God, it's a really bad term. There's no God's philosophically in Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I think in practice, in the local communities, perhaps less of that. But so each deity would represent a concept. So it's a concept illustrated as kind of an androgynous figure. And you would use that as a tool of your meditational practice usually. But there's medical tankas, astrological tankas, all kind of different uses for tankas historically, like different things. And practically, how is the process of making a tanka different from, say, a uh, painting, the kind of uh, materials that are used? Yeah, so as an artist now in the modern world, you just go to the shop and you buy acrylics and oils and off you go. Um, but I mean, it's very similar to what would have been art in medieval Europe. So you would have to, you still have to grind your own pigments, mix it with resin, you have to prepare your own canvas. It's very labor intensive. Um, so if you compare a lot of the Tibetan art style, iconography, Um, the physical labor of a painting, it's very similar to medieval art in Europe. Um, So back in medieval art in Europe as well, it was also primarily religious. And I would say Tibetan art is still 85% religious-based. So in this year, from like 2005 to 2006, you're taking these monks on different stops, um, helping people understand this culture. And of course, you know, living, traveling in a van full of of monks. Mm -hmm. Again, once again, as, as I'm guessing, the only woman on the trip and, and, pro- and the only Westerner, only North American on the trip. I, I have to ask, there was a, there's a story you told me before, and I, I'd love to hear it again, which is that you're approaching, you're, this is a North American tour, right? So it's U.S. and Canada. And you're, you're approaching the Canadian border. And, uh, and maybe I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah. So, I mean, from Delhi Airport to the Canadian border, things kind of <laughs> continued in that vein. So we were, I think it was Detroit, 
and we were going to cross over into Windsor and go into Canada for the last, I think it was three months or whatever, of the Canadian part of the tour. So the day we were supposed to be leaving, I had said to the, the leader of our tour, who's an older monk in his 70s, so I said, you know, guys, we have to pack tonight because tomorrow, you know, we have to go up to Canada So because I was in charge of, like, making sure everybody got where they needed to go. And he said, yeah, no, tomorrow's a very inauspicious day. We're not going to travel tomorrow. And so I said, yeah, but so we're, this is actually the last day of your American visa. So we actually really kind of need to travel tomorrow because your visas are going to be done. And he said, yeah, yeah, no, tomorrow's not auspicious. We'll go the day after tomorrow. And so at this point, I had already done like six or seven months of touring with these monks. And I was kind of like, okay, fine, whatever. Sure, if you all go to jail, I'll just go to Canada by myself. I have a Canadian passport. It's all good. So at this point, I'm like, fine, whatever. Tomorrow's inauspicious. All right, we will stay in Detroit. Good. <laughs> so we just sat around the house basically all day. And, and, you know, they started packing in the evening and off we loaded into this van to continue up <laughs> to Canada. And I was just like, we're going to get to the border and it's going to be insane. And so we, we arrived at the border, um, happily, you know, ready to drive across. So I have all the passports like in my hand. So my Canadian passport on top, which was fine. And then, so this ginormous kind of customs guy for, I had to cut, get out of then. So I'm standing there with all these passports. The driver, you know, where all the monks are sat in this van. And so he's looking in and, and like all the monks are kind of waving at him and <laughs> still reciting their rosaries. You know, the old monk is sat in front. And so he, he, he looks at me and he looks at this van and so he opens my passport and I'm fine. He looks at the next one, which is the old monk sat up in front. And it's clearly a day overdue. So he looks at me and says nothing. And keeps going through the passports. And of course, all of them are now a day late. So we have been illegally in the States for a day. And he just looks at me and he looks back in the van and the monks are all still kind of waving at him quite happily. And he's like, you know, ma'am, you know, you're, you, all these visas are, are, are expired. And I was like, yeah, I know. Yesterday was an inauspicious day for traveling. And he just looked at me and he's like, I have never been told this before. <laughs> and he's like, you know, this is actually, you're very much in the wrong. I could fine you all. A whole lot of money and I was like yeah you you could but you know it it was inauspicious and we couldn't travel yesterday and so he's like don't do it again and let us go <laughs> and the monks are like yeah see it's fine <laughs> I would think like in the screenplay version of that you're like don't do this again you mean don't travel for an entire year with a van full of monks uh, you know this is also like this is like three four or five years like after like 9-11 I, I can imagine the border there they yeah, and I, I could just see them too, like looking in the van, and like you, you know, the, the great thing about you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to essentialize here, but you know, I, I can imagine a van full of monks from 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 India or, or Tibet via India, and all just kind of looking at, looking at him and kind of smiling and just kind of like waving at him with that kind of big grin. And, yeah, I, I don't have I ever told you this bit. Yeah, so as part of this process, he's like, can you? Because we had like a top, what do you call those things? He put on top of the van, like storage. So those were all full of like, you know, like stuff you store ski equipment in. So those were all full of our, our ski stuff or our, our sales stuff. So anyway, this, this guy comes around and he says, can you open the back of the van? And as I open the back, we have the big yak mask and the snow lion on top of all the rest so they don't get damaged. So I, he, yeah. And he's like, yeah, just go. Yeah. I'm sure I didn't want to have to fill out the report. So, so after the, uh, so after the Tibetan Art Tour 2006, 2007, 2005, 2006, excuse me. And I'm sure there's a, a tour t-shirt that's on eBay somewhere. After that, you were, I, I get the feeling maybe done with living with done monks with for a while? Monks. Done with monks. Done with monks. Never uh, wanted to see another monk. Okay. Ever. 
And so then you relocated to China. Uh, no, actually, I, I went home first. <laughs> so I had left Canada at 17 because I was an obnoxious teenager. So at the end of this tour, I went back with, well, five monks defected. So I went back with five, four monks. <laughs> Did I forget to tell you about that part? Yeah, there's a lot more to the story. Anyway, so I went back with most of the monks um, and did the um, accounts and stuff. So we did that. And then I was just uh, done. Like, that was a year of my life that I, I do not wish to relive. So I went home and I love my, my family. They're great. Um, but yeah, after three months, I was ready for monks again. And then, yeah, then I came to, to China. So I came to Qinghai first. And then I was there briefly. Um, couldn't wasn't able to stay where I was planning to stay. Went to Sichuan for like two years, 2007, 2008. Um, but where I was living was where the earthquake happened. So that wasn't a very long life sort of happiness place to be. So after the earthquake, I went up to Qinghai and was working for an NGO as an editor, translator for a while. And yeah, then Snowland happened. Yeah, talk talk to us about how the, the first idea for Snowland came about. Or I guess maybe it wasn't necessarily an idea. It just kind of evolved oh, yeah. naturally or, or through the... Through serendipity, as it were. But where was, what was the earliest beginnings of Snowland? Yeah, so Snowland wasn't actually a plan. Um, Snowland evolved without my agreement or inclination. Um, so while I, while I was in Xining, um, working for this NGO, one day a monk turned up, as they so frequently do in my life, and said, I hear you do monks, so like, will you teach me art? And I was said, okay, well, sure, you know, I'm going to be here for six months, story of my life. Um, and then a few months later, another one turned up and they kind of kept turning up. And then we decided, oh, maybe we should have like an entrance exam because otherwise there's going to be too many of us. And so I had a school somehow. And that was 2010 I first started. So now 13 years later, yeah, yeah 13 yeah. years later. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I hear you. People ask me, I, I, people ask me like, so you've been in China a while. How'd that happen? Well, I came for a one year research grant. 20 years ago yeah but tell, talk talk to us a little bit you know give us a sense for those people who haven't who haven't had the chance to see the school or see the academy talk to us a little bit about what it looks like how it runs who's there what does a day look like for the students and the the teacher or teachers teacher, teacher. um yeah so we we were in Shining for a, a short time and then um various things, mad things happened as they do, went down to um, Shaha. So I bought a house in 2014. Um, so a day in the life, a day in the life of Slowland, basically we have 8.30 till 12 is morning studio session. Um, so it's a five-year program. And the first year is basically pencil, proportion, anatomy, perspectives, the kind of boring technical stuff, just with pencil. Um, second year is white on black. Third year is color pencil. Fourth, fifth year, they get into painting then with acrylics. Um, so morning, afternoon sessions um, are just studio time. So each class, like every year, it's two or three kids usually per class. I only take a maximum of sort of 14, 15 students at the most. Um, and so for this five-year program, it's six days a week. And they have like two months total off every year. So 10 months a year, six days a week, we draw paint. So it's very intensive. It's more of an art apprenticeship program, probably. So art, art history, printmaking, other skills as well. So the students who come um, every September is entrance exam month. And so students can apply and join anytime during that month. They can come and take the exam because they come from Sichuan, Gansu, Qinghai, all over the plateau. 
And on the very last day of September, my enrolled students, we get together and have a family meeting. And then we discuss and we decide who we wish to take and we vote. So I only get one vote, everybody gets one vote. And every year we take probably two or three, depending. Um, we're more about quality rather than quantity. We don't take kids from rich homes because Snowland is kind of like a charity in the sense that they don't pay tuition. So they live with me for the five years. Um, they pay for their own food, but rent and everything else, electricity, I cover that. So you're, you're living with the students as well as working with the students. And you have about 15 or so students in the program at any given time. How old are the, how, what's the age range? Of, I mean, we, we, you started, well, try to avoid the verb, to do the monks. But you, you, started, you started with teaching monks. Yes. But now, of course, the students are, come from a variety of backgrounds, only a few of whom actually are, are part of a monastic tradition. Yeah, so there's only ever a few monks at a time. Um, currently, I have three, and that's probably the most at any one time. So yeah, um, boys, girls, doesn't really matter. I try to have a, kind of a balance of both, but I mean, just because of logistics and culture, I have far fewer girls than boys. Um, mostly because a lot of people still say, even even now, that it's a waste of time teaching girls. They're just going to get pregnant and have kids anyway, so kind of why bother? Um, and it's just harder for a lot of families to understand the need for educating girls. So I had thought around about 2012 that I should maybe have a school for girls, not just boys, but like not boys, just have a school for girls. But then talking to other friends, they said, well, if you other the girls, if you separate them, that still keeps them kind of lower in a sense, like they're not good enough to be with the boys. So they said it would be, it would be better continue to be co-ed. So we've been co-ed the entire time. Part of what Snowland does is not just art. So it's also very, we focus on equality, boys, girls, monks, whoever, everybody cooks, everybody cleans, everybody does everything. Um, and so hopefully my boys will come out of it as good husbands one day who will treat their wives a little bit better than their fathers treated their mothers probably. And then it's a confidence building thing for the girls. Yeah, if you don't mind talking about it, I know one of the things we talked about the last time I was at the, the, the academy was that you had just recently lost a student uh, to marriage. And I was wondering if maybe, you know, I, I know it's a, it was a pretty um, sad time for the whole Snowland community, but I thought maybe just to give a sense for some of the challenges um, for female students, for young women who want to pursue this career, which maybe talk a little bit about this one student and what happened to her and what was the effect on the, the, the other students as well? Yeah, so one of my girls, Rinchenso, um, who's from a small village uh, several hours from where the school is located. So she had, it's a five-year program. She had finished like four years and three months or so. So she should have been graduating in uh, 2023 this past October with her other classmate, a boy and another girl. So in the spring festival, the kids go home for six weeks holiday for like like a Christmas break kind of thing. So they go home and then um, after six weeks, they're supposed to be coming back and then we start the next term. Um, so she had called me the day before she was supposed to come back and said, oh, you know, teacher, something's happened. My dad's coming with me tomorrow. So I already knew there was going to be some problem. This sort of thing has happened in the past as well. So she came with her dad and then they kind of came into my room and we were talking and apparently they had um, married her off during the spring festival, like the New Year holiday. Um, so a local boy from their village who comes from what they would call a wealthy family, they have a little restaurant. So he's like a slight step above the local, other local people. 
and he was, I think, 18, and he had some behavioral problems. He was drinking and smoking, and his family decided to call him down, calm him down. They should marry him off to a, a good girl. So, so Rinchen so's her older sister, who's like three years older than her. She'd be 21, 22. Um, they had asked her first, and she's like, yeah, no, never, no way, thank you. But Rinchen so was quite a sweet girl, and she was a very kind of a soft personality. She always wanted everyone around her to be happy, and that went with us as well. She was very much kind of the, the peacemaker of Snowland. Um, and so she said she just couldn't refuse because her family was so upset with her older sister for saying no. So she said yes. Um, and so they married her off and the dowry was paid and she didn't want to tell me because she thought I would be disappointed in her. And then she didn't tell her classmates either, the other girls, because she just thought we would all be kind of upset in her lack of strength. So it was too late and so then... Um, I said to her dad, well, you know, she has eight months left. Just let her graduate, let her finish. Because once you've um, finished the Snowland program, that means you then have basically access to any future projects we do, like you're part of Snowland forever. So if we have exhibitions, you can be part of that. It's part of the kind of the, the credit you get if you've finished the program. The other thing with Snowland is all the paintings you do during the five years, anything you sell, all the work you create, if you graduate, then you get that money and you, you can go back with the art so you have everything. If you don't finish the program, you forfeit all that. Mm. And the reason we set that whole system in practice was because I had an issue with this before. Um, but her father said, oh, well, you know, why bother? You know, what do you need your art for? It's just a waste of time. So he, he wouldn't let her finish. So um, I went to talk some monks from her local area to see if we could negotiate with the family because monks are very much a part of the, the community. And they said, well, we can't really do anything because, first of all, the dowry's been paid, and second, she said yes. Mm. So it was too late. So that's the sort of problem I have with the girls, especially, where the family starts pressuring them once they turn 20 to start cranking out babies. And, you know, you're an old lady by the time you're 20. You should have had at least two kids. Well, how, how did this story affect some of the other students who are kind of, I mean, they're, they're, they're familiar with this culture. Obviously, they come from this culture. They know the, they, they know. I mean, you know, very intimately, the the pressures, the challenges, but maybe not always. The, the the male students may not always understand totally what some of the female students are facing because it is you know the, the culture it does tend to favor males in a, a, a particular way even today. And I was wondering maybe how did this story kind of affect those students? Yeah. So if you're looking for a silver lining to the whole story, um, the girls, my other girls were trying to convince her to just run away. And, and they said, well, you know, teacher will look after you, can stay with teacher, you know, you'll have a place to go. But by doing that, you know, you're giving up on your entire family. It's not as easy as that. Um, so she wasn't prepared to do that. Um, but again, silver lining. So the girls basically said, you know, if we get married, we're going to be older. We're going to think about it. We're not going to let this happen to us. So whether that's feasible or not, but at least they have the mindset. So it's more of a confidence in their own strength as women. And then the boys were also really upset by this whole thing because this is their classmate. She's very talented. She was one of our best kind of English speakers, smart, beautiful, talented young woman, and being thrown away on this family that was basically just going to use her to cook and clean and make babies. So they were quite upset. So we all kind of sat down and talked about it. And I said, you know, if this upsets you, don't do this to your daughters or wives or... And so they're like, oh, no teacher. So the only way to, like, it's too late for Rinchen, so I couldn't get her back. 
but maybe for Rinch and So's daughter, it might be easier. It's the only way to change things. One of the other programs that you run uh, through Snowland is the girls' camp. And I know it's something that you've been particularly excited about. And I, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what was the origins of the idea? What is the girls' what is the girls camp all about? What are some of the things you talk about? For those of you who are interested listening, I'm pretty sure, and I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it again, but there's a really a video that one of your volunteers uh, put together, a really good video about her time at the girls' camp, which I thought really kind of captured a little bit of the, the the feeling there. But I thought maybe you could talk more about specifically about where was the origins of this and what are some of the things you do at the girls camp? So I basically inflict all my passions on my poor students. So the girl power thing has become increasingly important to me, um, especially living in this, in this culture. Um, so the girl power st- camp started originally because we have a lot more girls who would love to join Snowland, but their parents won't let them come for five years. So what we started doing in, I think it was 2017, maybe, um, was a week like summer camp, basically, winter camp, summer camp, where um, local girls will come for the week. And my girls actually plan it, organize it, run it. So for my girls, it's a, a life lesson, a confidence empowerment thing, because they get to organize, they get to plan, and then they're kind of teachers. So for them, it's really empowering, and they have to think about materials, and they have to plan everything. So it was really good. Um, for the local community, it's a way for them to have kind of a snowland experience without the five long year thing. So we usually have anywhere from 10 to 25 girls for this camp. Um, and as part of the camp, it's advertised to the locals as like arts and crafts. Um, and we do that. We also do baking and other various activities. But the whole point of the camp is about just talking to the girls about don't let people tell you you can't do things because you're a girl. So we watch a few movies which are kind of focused on young women or girls who have overcome different things in their cultures and around the world. And then we talk about those, we discuss them, we have speakers come, we have a session on women's health. So discussing menstruation and why and how and they have a chance to ask questions that they would often be too afraid to talk to other people about, even their moms. So because I'm a weird foreigner, they can feel (laughs) comfortable that they can just ask me stuff because, you know, I'll answer them. Um, And so the whole week is just about kind of empowering and building confidence and um, making connections among the girls. And then the very last day, we have a kind of a discussion where we all sit down and everybody talks about what sort of hardships they feel they've faced as a woman, as a girl in their community. And that ranges from everything from like bullying in school to rape, forced marriages. So sometimes there are some epic stories that come out and then everybody sits for, we're all in tears usually by the end of it. Um, But it's just, it's a way to share and it's a way to not be othered and a way to feel comfortable talking about your own situation and realizing it's not just you, everybody has stuff and some other people have worse stuff than you. And then usually at the end of that, they get added to the Girl Power WeChat group. So it's like a kind of a family where everybody shares. And then if if anybody has an issue or problem, they put it in the group and they talk about it. I'm not actually in the group. This is something the girls run themselves. So that's Girl Power Camps from 2017 until now. So it's this growing group of women. Snowland's located in the, the town of Xiaohe, which is in which is part of the Tibetan Plateau. It's in nor- the northern part of the Tibetan Plateau. It's part of the Tibetan province of Amdo. And for 
looking at the Chinese map, it's kind of pretty close to the border of Qinghai and Gansu. For people who are traveling, in the Lebrong Monastery is located right there, which is a major, a major tourist draw. And for people who are traveling in China or traveling to that area to see Lebrong, is it possible for them to visit Snowland and to check out the, the school or to see some of the students' art? Absolutely, do come and visit. <laughs> I'm usually desperate to speak English. Um, yeah, so if you fly into somewhere like Lanzhou or Xining, um, it's a three and a half hour bus ride from other place south. Um, and it, it is beautiful. It's it's an easy place to stay. It's very tourist friendly. Lots of hotels, restaurants, the monastery. There's the grassland. There are some Silk Road places. So a lot of stuff to do. But then you're also absolutely welcome to visit Snowland. We love having people visit. Um, for my kids, they get to meet people from all over the world. And for them, it's a chance to practice their English and share their art. And we always love, love having visitors. Yeah, I can attest to that. Um, most recently, uh, this semester, I t- as part of our, the program where I teach, we took a couple. We took a couple of our students to, on a, a research and sort of field ex- field studies trip out to uh, Qinghai and Gansu. And one of the places we went was Xiaohe. And I, I can, I don't want to speak for my students, but I feel fairly confident in saying that one of the high points of their, if not the high point of their trip, was the chance to meet. Um, some of Tenzin's students and uh, hang, to hang out with them and just find out that there's a lot of kind of commonalities between being 20 years old, whether you grew up in Arizona or Washington or Qinghai or Gansu. And I, I, that's as a teacher, that's always kind of, for me, that's like the coolest thing. It's, it's, it's way more, it matters to me way more than like that they were able to remember what was in the reading. But just watching those kind of connections being made is, is really kind of why for me anyway i I do education and i I suspect that for for you as well well thank you so much for uh, for coming on the uh, the the podcast and uh, we'll put the we'll put a link to the website and information about snowland in the show notes for anyone who wants to take a look travel there get involved um certainly uh anyone who would want to support snowland and their endeavors i mean feel free to do that as well and uh thank you very much crystal for for first of all taking time out of your whirlwind trip here in beijing uh to to stop by thank you for having me it's always brilliant to talk to you and thank you all very much uh we'll talk to you again at barbarians at the gate cue the drums (laughs) 